0: Welcome to our Easter gathering here at RHC. It is good to be with you on this beautiful Easter Sunday morning. I am am kind of excited to announce that uh, God has set things up in such a way that uh, we will be able to stay in our regular teaching series today. We've been Teaching Through the Gospel of John for, for well over a year now. And, um, you know, when you get to these holidays and things, you kind of have to usually kind of deviate away from whatever your normal series is you're in and, and go into something that, that focuses on the subject of that holiday, Easter, Christmas, what have you. And uh, so I'm pretty pumped that we don't have to do that today, that we can stay right in the Gospel of John where we've been for a long time, seemingly. And by the way, if you've been with us, this is going to be our 78th sermon in John. So, and um, that's not my accomplishment. That's God's grace and God's mercy and God's leading. So, 78 sermons we've logged so far. This will be the 78th, so I'm really, really pumped. Now, several, uh, well, let's, let's, we've got to kind of bring things into some context for some of you that haven't been here, and so, um, you need to kind of have a basis for what we've been doing in John and we've been in chapter sixteen for I think four or five weeks now and um chapter sixteen is part of this thing called the farewell discourse These are kind of the last teachings of Jesus to his disciples before he goes to the cross and so that's you know pretty much what we've been focusing on and uh, we've we've managed to get ourselves all the way up to verses twenty five and through, 20, or through 25 through 33 in John 16. So that's where we'll actually be today. And, and last week, what we actually looked at was how... And Jesus, what Jesus was doing, he was ministering to his guys who have been sorrowful because they know he's leaving. He's got 11 disciples he's, he's been ministering to. And he talks to them about how his death, which is going to happen like the very next day in probably 12, 14 hours tops, how it's going to kind of compound their sorrow how it's going to make them sorrowful. They're going to know that he's died on the cross. Some of them will witness that from a distance, and it's it's just going to fill them with with sorrow and sadness and these sorts of things. But he tells them that in a short amount of time, their sorrow will transform and become joy. And that's really what we focused on. And and now what we've come to is Jesus' last set of teachings to them Uh, before he actually spends a lot of time in prayer. That's all of chapter 17. How many of you have heard of the high priestly prayer? That's John 17. It's by far and above the the greatest prayer, recorded prayer that we have access to. Um, There are some amazing prayers in the Psalms and in other places in scripture, but this one is, is just so far beyond those. So all of chapter 17 is committed to to that, to the high priestly prayer. And and that's part of the farewell discourse, but not really. It's just a prayer. He's not giving a discourse. So the section we're going to be in today is the very last bit of stuff he gave them in the discourse. And then you go into 17, and you've got the high priestly prayer. And then you go into chapter 18, and you've got him crossing the Kidron Brook and going into Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's actually arrested. So you have what we call the arrest narrative or the trial narrative narrative. So, equally exciting, we're looking at the last bit of teaching that he did on that night before he was arrested with his 11, because he had 12, but what happened with the one? Judas Iscariot, he left to betray him, to sell him out. And so, that's what we're going to be looking at today, and this section of verses 25 through 33 is kind of framed as a a final encouragement or a final exhortation, and what Jesus does is he focuses on three things, The three things are, he focuses on the Father's love for the disciples, the disciples' faith in himself, in Jesus, and peace in the midst of tribulation. So that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today a little bit. And uh, I think this text is probably one of the best texts that you could possibly use to promote and present the resurrection of Jesus. So this is one of the things you're going to be wondering, well, how does this text relate to the resurrection? Well, it does in such an extraordinary way. Would people normally go to this text they're going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus? Maybe not. But if you just slide down to the very last verse and look at what Jesus said in verse 33, you'll see why. In this life you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world, which to me is a phenomenal theme for Easter. And we're going to discover how it all relates and how it works in a little bit here. So if you guys would please take your Bibles and turn to John 16, we're going to be looking at 25 through 33. And if you use an app on your phone or whatever, that's fine. Just make sure that it's on airplane mode or muted or something. We don't want any disturbances during the service, especially now. John 16, 25 through 33, I will pray and then we'll we'll go ahead and get to work. Father, we submit ourselves to you now and humble ourselves now and just bask in your radiant glory and purity and holiness. And as we do that, we realize we are none of those things. That it's only by Jesus Christ that we have any kind of righteousness, that we're at all presentable to you. And I thank God, I thank you, God, that you have given us righteousness through Christ. Those who believe in him are clothed in his righteousness. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for this this text. Um, It's a doctrinal tour de force. There's so much going on here. Lord, I'm I'm thankful that um, you were able to, well, not you were able, but you helped me parallel it to the resurrection to see the gospel truth that is represented in this text. And I pray that you would make that incredibly clear to those who are here to listen today. And I pray that this sermon would not be received by anyone here in this room as a mere lecture or just a talk or any of that, that it would be your very word coming to them and piercing their hearts and convicting them of their sin, convicting them of their their unbelief, and great need for our only remedy, our only hope, and that's Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you would save people today, Lord, that only you can do that. We pray that you would sanctify those who are already in Christ, make them a little bit more like Jesus. And we pray our ultimate goal, our ultimate objective here this morning is to bring you glory through the songs, through the prayers, through the fellowship, through baptism, through the preaching of your word, through the reading of your word, all that we do, it's all about you, Jesus, and it's about your glory. So help us to, to uh, focus on that now. We love you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, once again, John 16, 25 through 33, we're going to look at our first point. Number one, we're looking at the Father's love for the disciples, for those particularly those guys that are in that room, with, or not in the room, but they're walking with Jesus toward Gethsemane right now. And we see this represented in verses 25 to 28. I'll just read it and then give you some explanation. Jesus continues by saying to them now, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech. And let me tell you, they were rejoicing when they heard that. But will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Why? For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. And he says this in 28, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. So Jesus begins by in, in verse 25a, he begins by pointing out how he has used figures of speech in his teachings. Well, What exactly is a, a figure of speech? Well, in the, in the Greek here, it's paromia. And, and what it refers to is these are like veiled statements for which the meaning is not immediately apparent. And in order to come to a conclusion about the meaning, you actually have to diligently look into what he said. It's not a straightforward saying, it's something that has that truth represented in it, but, but it, you, know, you have to actually think about what he said, and you've got to figure out the parallel in it. I can give you some examples from Jesus' teaching of parameia In Matthew 15.10, he said this, It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Now, some of you are automatically, you're not doing it now, but you're you're thinking of scratching your head going, I have no idea what he meant. What is he saying there? In Matthew 16.6, here's another one. He said, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The Pharisees and Sadducees were two religious groups. They were opposing religious groups who believed different things. And he's telling them to watch out For the leaven of them. Well, what is leaven? Leaven is something we use in baking, it's yeast. But this is another one of those head scratching moments. What does he mean by this? Of course, they totally misunderstood and thought, well, we hadn't brought any bread with us, so we're going to go hungry. (laughs) And then there's another example here that takes place immediately after his transfiguration. Maybe you're familiar with what happened there. He goes up on the Mount of Olives with just a handful of guys, and he for, for just a few moments, reveals who he is and his deity, his glory is shown. And it kind of blows the minds of those who are there. And, and when they're coming down from the Mount of Olives, and when you think Mount of Olives, don't think Mount Everest. It's really like a big foothill. And they're coming down, and, and Jesus literally looks at Peter, James, and John. Those are the three disciples, apostles who were with him. And, and he warns them not to say anything about what they had seen and here's, here's the paramea, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead, Mark 9.9. 9. In each of these examples of Paramea, the disciples did not initially understood or understand what Jesus was actually saying to them, to them until he actually had to pull them aside to break it down and explain to them what he meant. In other words, when he used these examples and these figures of speech, they were like, huh? What, what is the Son of Man rising from? They didn't understand resurrection when Jesus talked about it for himself or applied it to himself. And so he was in the habit of taking them, you know, and, and, and kind of taking them away from the masses because he always had these crowds of people with him and then he would kind of, okay, here's what it means. And then they would go, oh, we're not going to go hungry. You're not talking about bread at all. You're talking about the bad teachings of those religious groups. I get it. Now, If you're like me, you're probably wondering, why would you, I mean, you came to to preach the gospel, Jesus came to preach the gospel, Jesus came to die for his people and rise for his people, these sorts of things. Why would he use figures of speech? Why would he not just speak plainly and clearly every time? Right? Is that what's going through your mind? That's what goes through my mind. Well, sometimes Jesus did this to literally keep the truth veiled, undiscoverable from unbelievers who are spiritually blind as a result of their unbelief and rebellion. Jesus used figures of speech at times to deliberately keep people from understanding what he was meaning. And you might think, well, well that kind of defeats the purpose. Well, it doesn't defeat his purpose. This was a kind of judgment against people who refuse to believe. And quite frankly, no amount of teaching or miracles is going to cause anyone to believe. It's the Holy Spirit who makes a person born again and gives them this ability to believe and to respond. And so at times he just used these things, parables, to to deliberately keep people from comprehending. And, And you kind of get the idea that even if they could comprehend, they wouldn't repent and believe anyways. They're just dead set on doing their own thing. And I think other times that he did it, because he did have some disciples that were in his kind of his core group, they were at right? 12 originally and then 11 later, I think sometimes he used Paramea for them as a, as, as a means to kind of test their understanding and faith. Like, like if they were truly believers or growing in their faith as they're touring with him throughout all of Israel, that he uses these things, and, and these are things that he should be able to comprehend. And so it's kind of becomes like a test of faith. I'll give them a story that illustrates a truth and let's find out where they're at spiritually. Now he knows where they're at at all times, but I think he tests them for their own benefit so that they could find that they really weren't grounded in the truth very well the whole time. So, so sometimes it has to do with just keeping people from hearing and understanding and sometimes it has to do with testing. And yet in verse 25b, Jesus does something remarkable he tells the disciples there as they're walking toward the garden, right? He tells them that there is an approaching hour where he will no longer speak to them in figures of speech, but tell them plainly about the Father. Okay, I've been using figures of speech with you, but there's drawing an hour where I'm not going to do that anymore. The hour in reference here refers to the moment when the Holy Spirit would come and came, and that's on the day of Pentecost. What will the Holy Spirit do according to to John 16, John 15? What will the Holy Spirit do when He comes? He will guide the disciples into all the truth, verse 13. Or as Jesus put it here, tell them plainly about the Father. So when the Holy Spirit comes, He will teach them plain truths about Jesus the Father, and about the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit's not going to riddle them. The Holy Spirit's not going to use figures of speech. The Holy Spirit's going to help make them understand plainly what Jesus meant in every instance. That's His job. That's what He does. He is the a revealer. MacArthur put it like this, in that future hour, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the veil would be lifted and the disciples would understand more fully Jesus' relationship to the Father. And I think his commentary there gives us a pretty accurate idea of what Jesus is saying. In verse 26a, Jesus tells these same guys that from that moment forward, the hour when, when the Spirit comes and begins to reveal to them they're going to shift from being confused about his teachings and, and always asking him questions like, what did you mean here? What did, what did you mean there? They're going to shift from confusion to being prayerful. And, and, and you know, if, you have, if you're confused about something, you would obviously pray to God to ask him for clarity. But they're not going to be praying for clarity. They're going to be praying other things. The truth is going to be clear to them. They're going to understand it like never before. And they're going to become Prayer warriors, people who pray a lot, but they're not going to be praying all the time. I don't understand, Father, what Jesus meant back here, or what the Spirit is saying. They're going to get those things that they need to understand. And really, all we see here in 26a is a reiteration of what we see back in verse 23. The disciples will begin to pray in Jesus' name for the first time, but it won't be for understanding because the Holy Spirit is going to illuminate them. They will pray for other things. They will pray for God to display his power when they're preaching the gospel. They will pray for power for miracles and signs and wonders and these sorts of things to authenticate their message. So they're going to switch from confusion and always questioning God to praying for other things because they're going to have understanding. In verse 26b, Jesus tells them very plainly that it will not be necessary for him to act as an, an intermediary, intermediary between their prayers and the Father. You see it there, right? He says, look, I'm, I'm, it's, it's almost as if he's saying, I'm not going to stand in the gap for you, and every time you pray, I'm going to analyze your prayer and then go hand it off to the Father. I'm not going to be your prayer messenger. In other words, they will be able to pray to the Father anytime they like. And for anything but we do understand that God has a particular way he wants us to pray. We don't just pray for anything. Cadillac Escalade next Sunday, that'd be great. I'd like to roll up to church. Hi, Roland. Okay, here's your Ford Pinto. He's like, huh, why did I ask for that? Here's your moped, you know? Jesus is doing, he's, he's inviting them, he's giving them permission to approach the Father, the God of the universe anytime they like. And, and what Jesus was, was not doing here, he was not denying or rejecting his mediatory role in redemption here or anything like that. Jesus is the one and only mediator between God and man. 1 Timothy 2, five. It is his work alone that reconciles us to the Father. It is his work alone that restores our relationship With the Father, and He's not even pointing to any of that here. He's not taking himself out as the middleman. That's not what He's pointing to here. He is simply telling the disciples that it will not be necessary for him to intercept their prayers and hand them off to the Father. And I'll tell you, and I want to be sensitive. I'm not going to be bashing other religions today or anything like that. So that's that's not that's not my heart. But I'm telling you, this little half verse here just decimates, it just decimates the spurious Roman Catholic teaching of, of the doctrine of intermediation, which basically teaches that God is indifferent and harsh, Jesus is committed to justice, but Mary is compassionate, as are the lesser saints. Therefore, we should appeal to Mary, we should appeal to lesser saints. In other words, those are our mediaries. That's who we go through. That's who we pray through. And and this is just, again, I want to be sensitive. I want to be kind. But this is just a bold-faced lie coming out of Roman Catholicism. All believers, all believers, firstly are saints, not just those who do extra things for God. All believers are saints. All believers have direct access to their Heavenly Father. They don't have to go through Mary. And attempting to do so is demonic because Mary's enjoying glory with her Lord and Savior. She's not sitting there going, oh, here comes Phil again with another request. <laughs> she can't hear you. And if she could, she wouldn't be enjoying herself because you imagine what people are praying to her. My life stinks. Can you make these changes? No, no, no. People that are in heaven, they, 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 they're... they, they're, <laughs> They're not listening to us. We're not praying to them. Not, we can't interact with them. In other words, we can't spoil their joy up there with what's going on down here. We don't have to go through Mary. We don't have to go through, through anyone. We, we come to the Father through Christ's person and work, but Jesus is saying, man, you do not have to you know, I don't have to hand off all of your prayers. We don't go through Mary. We don't go through saints. We don't go through a priest. Every Christian is a priest. We don't have to go through anyone. What did the Apostle Paul say in Ephesians two eighteen? For through Jesus we both have access in one Spirit to whom Mary to a priest. No, to the Father. We have access to the Father. The doctrine of of the priesthood of all believers in 1 Peter 2 9 and Revelation 1 6 totally eliminates the need to go to the Father through intermediaries. All believers belong to a royal priesthood and have access to the Father anytime they like without restriction. Not just a select few that are really, really special Christians. None of what we're talking about here diminishes our need for for Jesus to intercede on our behalf as our great high priest. Jesus is not here with this awesome statement of this kind of liberty and free access that we have to the Father. He's not eliminating his role as as our intercessor, our great high priest. He's not diminishing any of that. Our access to the Father does not somehow bypass or remove this special work of the Lord. If, if Jesus ceased to intercede on our behalf, we would cease to believe in him. We would lose our faith. Luke twenty two thirty two. 32. You remember the narrative there in that, in that gospel where Jesus tells Peter, just earlier on the same evening, he says, you know, Satan has asked to sift you, and I'm going to let him, but I've prayed for you that you don't lose your faith. So, so, So newsflash, if you believe, A, it's not because you believe on your own, it's because God gave you the gift of faith, and B, you're not managing it, you're not upholding it, you're not sustaining it. The great high priest is. He fights for you, and the minute he ceases to fight for you, you're out. You're out of the game. He upholds our faith. He keeps our salvation secure, and you know what? He's not going to stop interceding for us as long as we're down here. I, I don't think he'll stop interceding for us, maybe maybe ever, I don't know, but Logically thinking, he, if he was going to stop interceding for us, it would be when we actually step over the threshold into the celestial city, heaven. Why would he need to intercede for us when we're there in his presence forever and ever? So, and Jesus is not negating or, or throwing away any of his roles here or his works that he does here. He's just telling them that, guys, you will be able to go to the Father. You will have... Full access to him. You're going to have a backstage pass. Why? And here, here's a question that arises again. Why? Why does the Father grant the disciples and, and, and all believers this kind of access to himself? Do we even understand here as believers what a privilege this is? This is, we're, we're talking about the Father who created all things, and I get it, God is one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but just think of the Father in his perfect holiness, his perfect beauty. If you look upon him in the flesh, you're roasted. He's so beautiful and glorious, you can't be in his physical presence in this form. I mean, he's just. Beyond anything that we could ever imagine. And yet this same father gives his people this access. Why? Well, Jesus gives the answer in verse 27a. What does he say? For the father himself loves you. For the father himself loves you. He loves you men. The men are walking with him. He loves all his people. As a good parent does, he gives access to his children. A bad parent doesn't give access to his children. A good parent does. And God is a perfect parent. Brothers and sisters, I want you to bask in this towering statement from our Lord. I want you to meditate on what it says here. For the Father himself loves you. I want you to bask in that statement from Jesus. I want you to meditate on it. I want you to drink it in. I want you to let it saturate the totality of your person. Let that sink down deep into you. That you are loved by the Father. The Greek word for love here is phileo. It means deep, caring affection. Why is it, disciples, that you have access to the Father? Because He loves you with deep, caring affection. And literally, this word phileo here in this context describes the love of parents for their children and vice versa. God expresses a special fatherly love and affection for His children. Children, God gives, gives us a snapshot of this, this great parental kind of love over in Romans 5.8 where the Apostle Paul wrote, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There has never and will never be a greater display of the Father's love for his people than the cross. You know what? The vehicles you drive, the home you live in, the clothes on your back, the food on your table are all expressions of his love. Your spouse, your children, they're all expressions of his parental fatherly love, but... That's the greatest display. The fact that he nailed his own son to that instrument of death. To be loved by a spouse, to be loved by children, to be loved by friends, to be loved by fellow believers is, is pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. But to be loved by the Father is so far beyond anything, anything that we can experience horizontally. There is no higher love than his love. There is no love wider than his love. There is no love deeper than his love. And there is no greater example of his love than his only begotten son nailed to the cross for our sins. Being loved by the Father is the highest privilege undeserving sinners like you and me can ever experience. That's just a fact. In verse 27b, Jesus provides the disciples with really a second proof That the Father loves them. Because the first proof is that they have access to him in prayer. And here he gives them a second proof. Let me show you how the Father loves you. And then he gives them a proof here, right? It is the fact that they themselves love Jesus. It is the fact that they themselves believe that Jesus came from God. How do you suppose they were able to love Jesus and believe that he came from God? Did they do this on their own? No, no man will ever arrive at this conclusion. No, no, no. The Father first loved them, and he expressed his love for them by causing them through the Holy Spirit to be born again, to be born of him. Right? John 3, 3 through 8 thus enabling them to love Jesus and believe Jesus' testimony about where He came from. In other words, the fact that they love and believe in Jesus is an expression of the Father's love for them. It's His love that causes their love and faith. That's what's meant here. Now, don't get me wrong, the Father certainly loves those who, who love the Son and believe in the Son, But it is not our love of the Son or faith in the Son that causes the Father to love us. If that were the case, then that would be some kind of a human activity or work, and that would plunge the gospel into false religion. The Father's love for us, for His people, predates creation. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, so... So his love for us cannot be based on how we positively responded to Jesus or anything that we did. He loved us before we existed. He loved us before we did anything. Romans 9, 11 through 16. So you must understand the Father's love for us is not based on our love and faith. It is the basis for our love and faith. Loving Jesus and believing in Jesus is the direct result of the Father loving us. That's something you might want to write down. How else are we supposed to understand 1 John 4, 9, which says, We love God. Why? Because He first loved us. If you love Jesus and you believe in Jesus, it's because God first loved you and He changed you, He caused you to be born again by His incredible sovereign grace, thus enabling you to love and believe in Christ, thus giving you the gifts of repentance and faith. Now you, you've got to you've got to let this truth sink down into you deeply. Never put your love ahead of God's love. Don't do it. Know that you were loved by God firstly and that you responded because of his empowering love. If you keep going back to this fundamental biblical truth and you keep reflecting on it, he loved me first, man. I simply responded to it by his grace and mercy, by him loving me first. My love is a response to his love. If you keep going back to that and reflecting on that, and if you memorize that, it, it's gonna help you. It'll help to prevent you from trying to earn God's love, from trying to earn God's favor, from trying to earn God's blessings. And tragically, we have a, a the church day is full of people who are running around trying to position themselves and do enough good things to get something from the father who, who loves them with an infinite love you, you you can't earn your way with god and so don't try to do it just just live in the reality and truth of His love, of His mercy, of His grace. And if you do that, if you reflect on what He's accomplished for you in the person and work of His Son, you will be liberated from this pull to earn, to strive, to position, to gain from God. You will respond the right way. You will just love Him back through obedience. That's what God is looking for. And that's the way He's wired it and structured it. So, Avoid putting yourself ahead. Just remember this, man. The Father's love for us is not based on our love and faith. It is the basis for our love and faith. Remember that. In verse 28, Jesus makes three short statements about his deity. We derive three doctrines from these statements here. And this is just like big stuff here that we won't have time to go into, but I'll just identify the doctrines based on his statements. Jesus says, I came from the Father. What is that? That's the doctrine of condescension. The idea that Jesus comes down from the Father. He is sent by the Father. He comes down. He steps off of his throne of glory. He condescends and comes down to his creation to make an atonement. For his people, that's the doctrine of condescension. Jesus also said, and I have come into the world. Well, this is the doctrine of incarnation. This is God becoming a man while remaining fully God. Yeah, try to get your mind around that. And he says this, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Well, what is this? This is the doctrine of ascension, him returning to glory, him returning to his place of origin that he stepped out of. And really, if you think about it, you've got the entire ministry of, of Jesus here represented in a sense, at least his earthly ministry. He condescends and leaves. He, he becomes a man. There's the incarnation, and then he goes through his whole ministry, and then he ascends. You've got the full span, the full bandwidth there, leaving and returning. And just think about all of the stuff that happened in between. Wow, what a ministry, three years of ministry, 33 years or so of life, perfect life. Those doctrines are represented there, and we don't have time to go into them, so you're going to have to come back, preferably next Sunday. Did I say that out loud? That was a thought. And why did he make these statements? His statements were meant to bolster the disciples' faith in his divine personhood, in his deity, the fact that he is God. That's why he made these statements. This is these truths here, these doctrines, these truths, this reality, it's going to help them deal with tribulation, the tribulation that they will experience post Pentecost, right? Verse 2 You'll be driven out of the synagogues. You'll be martyred, which means killed. What? Time to get off this train. No, the the more they understand about the deity of Christ, the, the more able they will be to get through severe tribulation. They will understand who Jesus is, they will understand it's all part of His plan. And the more we come to understand about Christ, His personhood, and the totality of it, His deity, His humanity, the better off we are in life. This is why we put a high emphasis on learning at this church, because I mean, you, how can you believe in what you don't know? <laughs> And, and you must understand, on the other side here, if you flip the coin, to deny Jesus' Jesus's deity, what is that? That is to damn oneself. A denial of the deity of Jesus Christ is to damn oneself. We must believe in, in the full personhood of Jesus Christ. And I say this because there's, there's cult groups that don't. We must believe that Jesus is fully God. We must believe that he is fully man. We believe it, we may not be able to comprehend it totally. That's something that I have to accept by faith and trust that the the scripture is true and right. And and we see the humanity and deity of Jesus in in all its fullnesses. We see it displayed in his ministry. But when I try to figure out how Jesus can be 100% man and 100% God, it makes more sense for him to be 50-50. But the Bible doesn't teach that he's 50-50 teaches them that he's 100-100. And so that's just something that I have to accept by faith. I mean, the Scripture shows it. We believe it by faith. We don't reject it. We may question, how does that work? But you no, know, to, to just deny his deity is, is literally to damn oneself. In other words, you can't be saved. How can you be saved by the Savior when you reject who he is? <laughs> People just play fast and loose with this stuff today. They don't care. Now, let's look at the second point. These other ones go faster, by the way. You're probably thinking, wow, that was, the, that was an entire sermon in one thing. Good Lord, he's going into another point. I ain't got time for this. Yeah, you're going to have to. The disciples' faith in Jesus Christ, that is our second point, right? This is the other thing that he's emphasizing and encouraging them here, 29 through 32. And look at this. Look at the disciples. This is the disciples responding to Jesus saying, I'm not using figures of speech anymore with you. They're like, Hallelujah. Look at look at this. His disciples said, ah, right? I don't think it was just ah. It was ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figures of speech. Note, notice the exclamation point. Right? If I was there, I would have been so happy. I would have been like, you know what? I have missed almost everything you've said for three years. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know, Phil. Your omniscience is pesky. (laughs) In verse 30, they say, now we know that you know all things. This is a weird response, right? They're relieved, and then they they say this. They say, now we know that you know all things (laughs) and do not need anyone to question you, which we've been doing for three years. This is why we believe that you came from God. (laughs) This is just an extraordinary statement from these guys. Verse 31, (laughs) Jesus... This is just why you got to be careful with what you say to Jesus. <laughs> Verse 31 Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? <laughs> wow. I lifted the, the figures of speech thing here for you, and now all of a sudden you're just fully trusting in me. And look what he says in 32 here's where the bomb blast happens and they get blown off their feet. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered. <laughs> each to his own home, and will leave me alone. And look what he says, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Oh, I love this. Jesus' statement about him no longer using figures of speech and teaching them plainly had an immediate positive effect on the disciples, right? They were just totally thrilled at hearing this. And and somehow they were able here in this moment to recognize his omniscience, right? That's knowledge of all things. And and what they're saying here, when when they say we now believe or whatever, this is is real, genuine faith. Now, it's not as strong as they thought it was, because we see Jesus' correction. But this is sincere, real faith. This is not, you know, fictitious faith. They really did believe, And they were really happy that they were going to be able to hear things plainly, maybe at some point. And the text also shows that they understood the references to his deity, right? They they, they understood to a degree the condescension of Christ, the um, incarnation of Christ, the ascension of Christ. Wait, you came from the Father, that means you're God because you came down from the Father from heaven. You're going back to him, obviously that means you're God. They, They were able to connect these dots, they got it. And this you know, being liberated from, so to speak, being liberated from the use of figures of speech and, and these statements about his doctrine just led them to exuberantly acknowledge his deity and to just boldly state their faith in him in verse 30. Bam! We believe. Woo, we believe. Come on, devil, let's go, right? MacArthur writes, their response in verse 30 suggests that at long last they were beginning to understand and the plan of redemption was becoming clear. Yeah, that's what's happening here. This is legit. And yet, in verse 32, Jesus seeks to reel them in just a bit. Their faith had been bolstered, obviously, but they did not yes, yet possess the fullness of the Holy Spirit's presence and power, which means what? Right? The Spirit had not come yet. Did these men have the Spirit? Yes, yes. But it was a different unction. On the day of Pentecost, the Spirit came in fullness and power. And so they had the Spirit in a sense here, because nobody believes apart from the presence of the Holy Spirit. But they didn't have the Holy Spirit yet the way they would after Pentecost. And what does that mean? It means that even though their faith was bolstered, and they had the Holy Spirit in a sense, it, when you follow it all the way out to the fullness of it, it means that they would not be able to stand firm in the very near future. My paraphrase of of 31 through 32a, it was as if Jesus had said, you boldly stated that you believe I came from God. Be careful not to get too ahead of yourselves here. There is an hour coming when you will scatter, abandon me, and return to your homes. Jesus just has a way of just humbling us. We just think we're there, and he says, you're not. And they didn't even know what was going to happen yet, right? This is several hours before they actually scattered. They didn't even know it was coming. Jesus is prophesying here. You guys are big men of faith now, huh? Because I'm not going to use figures of speech with you. Hallelujah. But guess what? In a few hours, you're going to bounce. That's what he tells (laughs) them. That's just why you just, when you're with Jesus, you shut up. And then he says, I know what you're thinking. You say, I can't escape it. He knows what I'm thinking right now. Okay, I'm not thinking about anything. Yes, you are. You're focusing on not thinking about anything. You just can't win with him. Now, what hour was Jesus referring to here, right? There's an hour coming when you're going to scatter. This is the hour of his arrest at Gethsemane. This is just hours away. And this is the second time that evening Jesus prophesied about the disciples scattering and leaving him. We don't see the first occurrence in John's gospel. We see it in Matthew 26, verse 31. He tells them, you're all going to leave me. If you slide forward to Matthew 26, verse 56, you will see that this is precisely what the disciples did when Jesus was arrested. (laughs) I wonder if why they were running away, they're going, he is true, he's right, his prophecy is true, look at me, I'm pathetic. But I'm going to keep running because those guys have clubs and swords. Jesus' words, his prophetic words, were literally fulfilled just in a couple hours. It was when he was arrested, just shortly after his arrest, of course, Peter turned into a samurai, chopped a guy's ear off. He was bold for a minute there, but, you know, just a few moments later, they just jammed. They scattered, they left him, and Jesus' words were fulfilled. And guess what else was fulfilled in that in that moment that Jesus prophesied would happen, that they would leave. There's a messianic prophecy in Zechariah 13, verse 7, which says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That's prophesied, and that's prophesied beforehand. Jesus reiterates it. It's fulfilled that same night as they run off. And some of them went to their homes and some of them followed at a distance. Peter in verse 32b, Jesus tells the disciples that, that even though they will scatter and leave him at that moment, he will not be alone because the Father will be with him. And I don't know about you, but <laughs> thank you, Jesus, for reminding me of that massive truth. I draw great comfort from the Lord's statement here. Friends and, and loved ones, they, 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 they come and go. They come and go. But God is always with his people. Always. He never leaves them. He never forsakes them. What did Jesus, who is God, say in Matthew 28, 20? Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Love that truth. We need that truth, don't we? Sometimes things happen in such a way that we feel so alone and we've got to remember that God is with us, that God is in us the Holy Spirit. Now let's move to that third and final point. Number three, peace in the midst of tribulation. Verse 33, Jesus is continuing to speak. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, Jesus is omniscient. I've mentioned this. He knows all things, right? He knows that the disciples will face tribulation after he is physically gone, after Pentecost. And he has already stated how the world will hate them. Chapter 15, verse 18, he stated what they will experience because of this hatred of the world, right? Excommunication, martyrdom, right? Chapter 16, verse 2. Here he tells the disciples that the primary purpose of his teachings in this very section, I would say 25 through 32, is to give them peace when this hostile world hates and persecutes them. In other words, when they experience tribulation. They will experience peace in the midst of their tribulation if they reflect on the Father's love for them if they believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And you must understand, that's not a one-time act. We keep believing in Jesus, keep discovering more about Jesus. Our faith is strengthened in Jesus as we grow in our faith. And they can have peace in the midst of horrific tribulation and persecution if they remember that the Father loves them, if they continue to believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And according to verse 33, if they remember a massive truth, and what is it? What Jesus said, I have overcome the world. How can believers, listen closely, how can believers have peace in the midst of tribulation? We've got to follow this same pattern, people. Peace will come to us no matter how difficult our situation is, if we reflect on the Father's love for us, if we believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and if we remember that Christ overcame the world. And I'll add one. We also need to remember who we are as believers. First John 5.5 5 basically says, The one who believes has overcome the world. Brothers and sisters, our faith in Jesus Christ makes us overcomers. Our faith makes us victors over the world, not victims of the world. How does faith do this? It connects us to the one who overcame the world, Jesus Christ. It's the conduit. It's the wire. It's the cable. It's the connection It connects us. We are overcomers because we are connected through faith to the one who overcame. The world can persecute us. It can even kill our physical bodies. But it cannot deny our citizenship in God's kingdom. It cannot destroy our faith and salvation because those things are secured in Jesus Christ and by Jesus Christ. It cannot separate us from the love of God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. The tribulation we experience in life, the tragedies that we go through, loss, sickness, illness, whatever it is, none of those things have the power, have any kind of literal power over our citizenship, faith, and salvation, over the love of God to us. They don't have any power over those things. They cannot disrupt or destroy those things. Now, you might be thinking at this point, how is our passage, and more particularly, verse 33, a perfect text for Easter, a, a great theme for Easter? I told you at the beginning, it's, it's just perfect for it. And you've probably been thinking the whole time, he hasn't even talked about it. This is the worst Easter sermon I've ever heard. <laughs> well, let me ask you a question. How do you suppose Jesus overcame the world? Do <laughs> you think about that? He did it through his perfect life. He did it through his sin-conquering crucifixion. He did it through his account-settling burial. And he did it through his death and devil-destroying resurrection. That's how he did it. That is how he overcame the world. Through his life, death, burial, and what we commemorate and celebrate today his resurrection. There's the connection. When we repent of our unbelief and put our trust in Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection for our salvation, we are we are saved from God's righteous judgment. We are saved from his divine wrath, and we become overcomers. Have you repented and believed in the person and work of Jesus Christ? Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time to repent and believe. I would just simply encourage you to to pray to the Father and ask Him for mercy. Ask Him to cause you to be born again through the Holy Spirit. Ask Him to grant you the gifts of repentance and faith so that you can believe in the person and work of His Son, Jesus Christ, so that you can be saved. John 6.37, Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never, I will never cast out. Never, never.